Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple of data points. We use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor is with us as well. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So the second data point today will be tied to the upcoming July 4th holiday. More specifically, we'll be talking about hot dogs, which is the quintessential July 4th grilled meat. So stick around to hear about that. But first, we're going to be doing something more uh, directly from the news. And the data point there is 300,000. That is the number of troops that will soon be in NATO's rapid reaction force. That's one of the outcomes of a major NATO summit that took place this week in Madrid. It was held amid the ongoing war in Ukraine. NATO is set to put a force of 300,000 on high alert. An unprecedented escalation, seven times the current number. Countries around the table are also recognizing that they need to spend more. Before the war started, I told Putin that if he invaded Ukraine, NATO would not only get stronger, but would get more united. The alliance made a number of announcements to show that it is taking its own defense seriously in light of that war. So yeah, we wanted to get into yeah, the economics of NATO. So let's dive right in there, Adam. So as I mentioned, there is this rapid reaction force that is now expanding from 40,000 to 300,000 troops. So I guess the first question from an economic perspective is, who's footing the bill for this unit exactly? And how does this work in practice? Is this group of troops a kind of real joint force? Is various troops from various countries all serving under a single command at a moment's notice? I mean, how does that look? I think there are two different components to this. I mean, NATO speak and jargon and, and organizational diagrams can get very complicated. And this is pretty much in flux. I think it's worth saying that they're, they're obviously looking to make a big announcement and make the numbers sound impressive. But I think there are two basic layers to distinguish. Um, one is the NATO response force, which is this series of units um, which are locally based. So they live in their home countries, but they are ready to be scrambled to deployment which have grown from um, 13,000 troops originally um, in 2014 to 40,000 today. So the Crimea crisis produced a, a tripling of that force. And now we're talking about a seven or eightfold increase. So it's it's huge. These are troops which are ready to deploy. I'm not sure whether that means actually deployed, but ready to deploy within two weeks. And I think one of the models here is going to be this so-called framework model of the military, where, for instance, the German Bundeswehr, the German army, incorporates units from 
Romania or the Czech Republic or the Netherlands into combat brigades, which are then, as it were, under standard NATO command uh, and will have joint control between different militaries. But the Bundeswehr provides, because it's the bigger of these armies, notoriously of also, of course, in, incapable in its own right. And so you incorporate other people's strength into your units. How this is all going to work out has to be sorted out in future. These are big numbers and clearly NATO is looking to make a splash, but it's worth putting in historical perspective because as recently as 1989, when we were still in the Cold War proper, you know, there were 250,000 American troops forward deployed in Germany all over the southwest of Germany and 55,000 British troops as well. Um, the, the West German army, the Bundeswehr, counted half a million men at the time. It was all men, uh, a wartime strength of 1.5 million. So we're some way away from that kind of level of mobilization. But nevertheless, this is clearly a considerable stepping up on NATO's part um, of its readiness and ability to react. So one of the other developments that has recently come is that Sweden and Finland, two northern European countries, um, have now officially declared that they want in to the alliance. It's pretty clear to me what benefits they would receive. Obviously, NATO commits to protecting the territorial integrity of all its member states. But what kind of benefits do countries like Sweden and Finland provide to the alliance? I mean, would they bring any specific military strengths with them into NATO? Yeah. And before we even get into that, it's worth saying that them joining is not just a commitment by NATO, but it's a very substantial commitment, right? Finland has an 800 kilometer border with Russia. Hmm. So there is a huge extension of NATO's range. I think NATO is considering this A, for symbolic political reasons, and B, because they always reckoned, if you like, that Russia, if it was going to mount some gigantic operation against Europe, uh, would probably intrude into the, sovereign, the sovereignty and neutrality of these countries anyway. What we've seen in Ukraine now should really give you pause on that front because Russia doesn't look like it's actually capable of mounting that kind of wide-ranging um, operation. Like you know, Attempting to do Kyiv and the Donbass at the same time turned out to be too much for Russia. In any case, yes, uh, bringing them in um, does involve bringing in considerable military capacity by the modest standards of 21st century Europe. I mean, there's a lot of historical references made at the, you know, currently. I mean, when people talk about Sweden and Finland's accession, they often mention the fact that Sweden has a long history, century-old history of jousting with Russia all the way back to Sweden's Charles XII and, and you know, the great Peter the Great of Russia. The, the big struggle for control of the Baltic was between Sweden, and which was at the time a mighty imperial power, and Russia. And Finland, of course, more recently has the experience of essentially fighting for its independence after the revolution of 1917, 1819, and then a Soviet invasion in 1931, and less often mentioned, but nevertheless significant, the fact that the Finns fought on the side of Hitler's Germany from 1941, and the encirclement of Leningrad, the northern wing of that was provided by the Finnish troops. So, yes, these countries have some experience of tangling with Russia. They're kind of in the Polish league, if you like, of long-term antagonists of Russia. And, and you know, under, under that aspect, it makes sense. It's also during the Cold War proper, they were very considerable military forces. They were a bit like, you know, mini uh, Switzerland's. Um, so mm. Sweden had a reserve, trained reserve, uh, reservist force of 850,000 men. Um, it had a considerable military industrial complex. It still does. Saab makes, you know, modern fighter aircraft. They had their own tank production, rather original tank designs from the Swedish side. <laughs> and still today, I think Sweden is probably the big win for NATO here. Um, no one doubts, I think, the determination and grit and you know, general organization of the Finns, but it appears right now that the Swedes have the more competent force. 
it, really interestingly, Sweden reintroduced conscription of a kind in 2017, a very unusual development in recent European history. It's very, very selective. So out of a cohort of about 100,000 people, young people born every year, of the relevant age, they're only conscripting four or five thousand, and the, but they've already had conflicts about it. People have been become draft, you know, dodgers and refusers in Sweden. So there's a real, um, I think, a sense of commitment on the Swedish part to tackling this. They're also one of the few countries um, in Europe which is developing not just defensive but offensive cyber capacities. Hmm. So the Swedes seem in earnest um, in, you know really putting up um, a, an active defense of their interests. So for them to move from neutrality to an open embrace of, of NATO is, given their long, long history of neutrality, is, is really a considerable thing. It also strikes me that the alliance these days is made of so many European countries, many of them fairly small countries, medium-sized countries. And as from what I can tell, plenty of them have pretty underwhelming militaries. I mean, these are not military powers necessarily that NATO is comprised of. So what is the issue with European militaries these days, really? I mean, is it because simply they're not spending enough? Or is it that they're not spending the money they have in their military budgets? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess more generally, how should a small country be efficiently using its constrained resources for a military budget? It should not be doing it independently. And this is the curse of European defence policy. If you add up what the EU members spend, it's 216 billion euros. Now, that is the number three defence budget in the world after the United States and China. So it's easily enough to buy you uh, aircraft carriers, uh, major uh, nuclear strategic deterrent. You could have absolutely everything you need for military sovereignty at that level of spending. You wouldn't need to increase it by a cent. But what you do need to do is spend it intelligently on one military. And instead, what they do is spend it on over 20 separate militaries. So they're kind of like these little Potemkin village militaries where you have enough troops to be able to you know, put on a parade and, and have some tanks to drive around on your national holiday. But you are not capable of, of really mounting any kind of military activity. I and mean, the Germans are the most staggering instance of this. They managed to spend almost 45 billion euros on the Bundeswehr and get nothing, literally nothing, in terms of military capability for it. The British and the French do a bit better. They spend 50 to 55 billion each. And they get capable militaries, but not really capable militaries. This was visible in Libya when they, they mounted that you know, ill-fated intervention there and ended up relying on the Americans within a matter of weeks because they ran out of ammunition. So, but if you if you aggregated this, it would be the third largest military budget in the world. And it would give you absolutely everything you needed to be completely, I mean, Russia would bounce off you, they wouldn't have a hope, and they wouldn't even tempt anything, I don't think. Hmm. So it's all a matter of politics. It's one of the most staggering inefficiencies that is out there in public expenditure, that you could spend this amount of money and get so little for it is really remarkable. Because, I mean, 216 is like the American Army's budget or the American Air Force budget, or the American Navy's budget. So Europe could have one of those. It could have a globally significant force. So you need less personnel above all. So you'd shrink all the armies down. You'd probably have no more than three or 400, maybe 500,000 men and women in, in uniform on that kind of budget, perhaps even slightly less. It's an astonishing example of just how particularist national politics can cause waste it's truly, it's truly staggering. I mean, this this does raise for me whether uh, there was something to the sort of obviously very crude 
rhetoric we used to have from the Trump administration. But I mean, do these European countries only get away with this because they know that, that America's there in the background? Up to a point. I mean, there are two. I mean, that's to, see the, that's to concede the American point that there is a risky world out there, right? I mean, the original, I think, the Europe, to get inside the Ameri- Europeans' heads, it's not so much that they thought there was a risky world and free road on America, so much as they just didn't think the world was risky. And the Americans somehow in the dark night of their soul were convinced that the world was still full of risks, but that was kind of an American hang-up. And so you kind of had to let the Americans do their thing. But then you stepped as far back from it as you possibly could, like the French and the Germans did in 2003. And and for good reason, right? That, that totally, America's war on terror, which consumed hundreds of billions of dollars, was a total waste of American resource. So... At at base level, the Europeans and the Americans actually just had a completely different threat perception. Hmm. Um, And I think the the Europeans just decided there was no point in arguing it out with the Americans if they wanted to spend between 3 and 4% of GDP on having this giant military. Well, then, yes, sure. I mean, one of the spin-offs was security for Europe up to a point, but also risks for Europe, right? Because when America goes blundering around fighting these ridiculous wars of choice, Hmm. it generates risk for um, everyone that is allied with the United States which I think currently is probably the European view deep down off the record of America's confrontation with China. Because Europe certainly has issues over human rights with China. Europe certainly has concerns about the influence of China, say, on European universities and you know abuse of the rights of Chinese in Europe. But Europe doesn't really have a dog in the Indo-Pacific struggle, mm. I don't think. I mean, they can persuade themselves of that. And then the American European security think tanks will cook up strategies for the Indo-Pacific. And the French will tell you they're an Indo-Pacific power because of their colonial legacy. But I mean, really? Mm. Question mark? Mm. Um, mm. So, so I think that free rider model is tempting. And it's certainly how Americans like to digest this. But I think if you really want to get inside the European head, you have to acknowledge that they just don't think or didn't think until, until Putin unleashed you know, these two phases of struggle in Ukraine didn't really appreciate quite how risky their neighborhood was. So finally, I wanted to ask about what the future of, I guess, NATO's relationship will be with Russia. Obviously, there's a war ongoing, but I imagine there's strategizing going on about what to do with Russia in the future. And so, yeah, I guess I was curious whether the Cold War strategy of containment could be making a comeback in dealing with Russia going forward. I mean, it seems like on the economic side, we're already sort of well into this kind of decoupling phase with all the sanctions that seem they may stay in place for a while. But in the terms of the military side, I mean, is, is containment viable when it comes to Russia? I think the answer at this point is we really don't know, right? Because um, we've only seen one facet of this conflict so far. A lot of people have been waiting for, you know, what they anticipate, which is some sort of absolutely massive cyber attack from the Russian side. And it wouldn't be directed at Ukraine. You'd go for higher value targets in the West. You know, we feared there would be a nuclear escalation. I'm still worried about that, depending on how the war in Ukraine goes. So we, I think the sensible answer to this question is we don't know. We weren't preparing for this. There wasn't a plan. The pain is going to be real. And that's, I think, where the cost is going to be borne overwhelmingly by Europe. Because when what we, one of the things we discovered at the beginning of this horrible war is that it was relatively easy for America to adopt quite radical sanctions against Russia because America doesn't really have much business with Russia. Hmm. And that's just not true for Europe. Right For Europe, figuring this out is a very, very difficult problem, and not just economically either. It's also about communities of, of Russians that live all over Europe, and, and more and more of them now as they, as they go into exile. 
uh, and and you know very deep social and cultural links, which are not unnatural and shouldn't be somehow like denounced as some form of appeasement, but are simply the sort of connections that you have with your neighbors and very large, very important, very culturally and socially significant neighbor like Russia. So figuring that out um, is is going to be hugely difficult and. And and anyone who has connections with with Russia is feeling the pain right now. I mean, it's it's a form of amputation that's going on mm. um, on both sides. I mean, most dramatically, of course, on the Russian side. I have I have friends and colleagues who are hosting, you know, literally half a dozen Russian emigres at this point who now all have to figure out what's next. It's a hugely complex and challenging issue. So to me, the politics of the peace, insofar as we can even call it that, are going to be much much more challenging, much more difficult than. The war, in a sense. I mean, and it's easy to say that from our point of view because we're not in the front line, and obviously from the point of view of those fighting on both sides, but on the side of the Ukraine, of Ukraine, where our sympathies lie, that's a crazy thing to say, right? But at some level, one of the reasons to go on fighting is that facing the politics of the peace is just too agonizing because the compromises that are going to have to be made there are, given the costs which have already been paid, just unthinkable in some ways. Yeah, that's certainly true from the signals that are being sent here in Berlin from the German chancellery that, yeah, at some point, the relationship with Russia from the German side won't be the same as the one from the US side, probably. Some of the reaction to that seems to sort of cynically accuse Germany of trying to just get back to making money off of Russia. But yeah, obviously, there's a lot of other considerations there as well. We do need to leave it there for now, but we will be right back to talk about uh, hot dogs. As strange as that sounds, yeah. It really, it's not obvious to me what segment would not sound strange with hot dogs. Yeah, so, I don't know. Exactly. I think, I think we're doing okay. I've, I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I've ever... Exactly. I, I think just saying the word hot dog out loud is strange. I don't, <laughs> um, it's very strange, yeah. I'm um, going to bring it round to a Cold War segue at the end, actually. Oh, really? We've got a special American meat Cold War segue for the conclusion. Hi, this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is, he's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc. And uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain. And, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest, and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, 
give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Hi, and welcome back. So our next data point is 150 million. That is the number of hot dogs that will be consumed on July 4th. That's just a portion of the 7 billion hot dogs Americans will consume over the summer. That's a whopping 818 hot dogs every second. This is one of those data points I had to double check, triple check, because I could not believe this. 150 million hot dogs on one day, July 4th. Uh, so we're going to talk about hot dogs. And the first question that came to mind is that growing up in the U.S., sort of the word hot dog was sometimes used interchangeably with frankfurter, wiener. That that does seem to suggest this, uh, you know, quintessentially American meat is, is actually kind of an import from Germany. You know, I know that those terms frankfurter and, and wiener, these are actually German terms. So I don't know, Adam, could you tell us how the hot dog actually got to America in the first place? Yeah, so um, there literally is something called the Hot Dog and Sausage Council of the United States, um, which makes it its mission to sort of, you know, enlighten and clarify and disambiguate the entire zone of, you know, sausage and hot dog economics. And obviously, in America, the hot dog bulks so large that it rather eclipses the sausage, especially anything other than the breakfast sausage, whereas as it coming to this as a European... You know, it's just obvious that the hot dog or Frankfurt or whatever is some subset of this much larger category of things we call sausages and which are ancient. You know, the earliest mention of sausages in Western civilization, God knows what it is in Chinese or, or Indian, is or is ninth uh, century. In, in Homer's Odyssey, there is already mention of sausages because what are they, right? They're, they're bits of tasty meat stuffed in offal and then grilled. Um, the particular genealogy of the hot dog as we know it probably originates, well, it's disputed between German cities, but I mean, let's grant it to Frankfurt, you know, in the center of West Germany on the on the junction of the Rhine and the Main, um, formally celebrated 500 years of the hot dog or the Frankfurter in 1987. So they date it to 1487. Uh, people of Vienna also claim it. The two things converge essentially in the melting pot of North America in the late 19th century in places like the Lower East Side of Manhattan, of New York, or Chicago. And by the 1860s and 1870s, German immigrants are selling hot dogs, what we would now call hot dogs. They were at the time called um, sausage dogs or Dachshund uh, sausages after the shape of the dog, you know, with the long elongated arched back. They're being sold on push carts in the Bowery from the 1860s. Uh, in 1871, Charles Feltman, a German baker, opened a first stand on Coney Island, and he sold 3,600 Dachshund sausages on milk rolls in his first year of business. I've worked it out. It's not really very many. That's only like 10 a day. So it's kind of a miracle it survived. An important date in American hot dog history is the Chicago Columbian Exposition, which brought loads of visitors to town. And they, because Chicago is, of course, a big German-American city, um, enjoyed the, the food. They became standard fare at baseball parks around about the same time in 1893 when they were introduced on the stands in St. Louis. 
Um, the term hot dog starts popping up in college magazines in the 1890s. And there's, in fact, Kammer a connection we share to Yale, um, where mentions of hot dog stands begin to appear in student magazines in 1894, 1895. Apparently at the time, the students were referring to the fact that you know they thought they might have been made out of dog meat um, rather than that they looked that way. So they were always cheap food. And one of the particular American oddities, of course, um, which shapes hot dog consumption in the US all the way down to the present day is that they end up kosher. They become a kosher food. And this is to do with the overlap between the German migrant community and Jewish uh, communities, many of them from Germany, Austria, but also across Central Europe on the Lower East Side. And so the Hebrew National Kosher Sausage Factory, one of the bastions of kosher hot dogs, uh, was established in 1905. And um, Hebrew National becomes a major supplier to New York delis. And from there, they spread to the entire country. One of the fascinating things about them is that savvy non-Jewish consumers knew that koshered Hebrew national hot dogs probably didn't contain dog or horse or any other animals that were non-kosher. And so buying them seemed like a clean choice. In fact, and Hebrew national played fully into this in the 1960s, believe it or not, they had an advertising slogan, which was buy our hot dogs. Why? Because, quote, we answer to a higher authority. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> No, no greater force than the original monotheistic God endorses our hot dogs. So if we were to look at hot dogs, I guess, from the perspective of labor economics, say, I mean, who makes American hot dogs exactly? I mean, where are the factories? Who's staffing them? And yeah, I guess, what are the conditions in hot dog factories as far as we, we know? Well, perhaps unsurprisingly, it's rather harder to research um, exactly the sausage making conditions than you might imagine. Famously, it's better not to know. I mean, having said that, if, you, if you're interested, there are several videos on YouTube, which um, I'm, I'm not sure I can strictly uh, recommend, but if you really need to know, they're just there. I mean, I think the best way to view these videos is to let's just abandon the conception that the hot dog is made out of meat. Like, If, if you think about what's going on in the videos as something more like, I don't know, industrial baking, if you think of the ingredients as resembling something closer to batter, which I guess accounts for the smooth texture, then the whole thing begins to feel a little less gross. Um, but there are factories which process up to 300,000 hot dogs an hour, which would feed that huge surge that you were mentioning earlier on, in, you know, on the 4th of July. They are highly mechanized. I, I don't think there's any doubt from watching the videos that this is pretty grim work and you wouldn't want to do it unless you had really few other options. But on the other hand, it's also not slaughterhouse work. So it's not as horrifying as the kind of ghastly labor that people have to do in and truly dangerous labor as well, because you're using cutting tools, whereas this is just food processing of a, of a particularly uh, intense variety. Um, again, getting hold of the market size and like who produces what is, is really tricky, apart from anything else, because the hot dog is so suffused with nostalgia that people seem to lose their grip on kind of basic mental arithmetic. So the standard hot dog numbers that you'll see is that through grocery channels, American households buy about a billion pounds of hot dog a year, a billion pounds. Now, standard size hot dogs are either eight to a pound or 10 to a pound, I've learned. So that's between 8 and 10 billion hot dogs a year are sold to American households. Now, if that strikes you as a truly staggering number, if you work it out over the population, what, it's about 30 hot dogs a year across the American population, which is huge, but perhaps not entirely unfeasible as a number. 
But the hot dog industry doesn't really, I think, really like the idea of it basically being a domestic article. What they really want to do is associate it with Americana and above all, of course, with baseball. And so what they like to tell you is that, yes, they sold a billion pounds of hot dog to people's homes, but they also sold 19.4 million hot dogs at ballparks. But if you just do the math on this, you know, it's quite obvious that that means that household consumption of hot dogs completely dwarfs anything that goes on in a baseball stand at this point, right, by a factor of about maybe 500 to one. The overwhelming majority of hot dogs are now produced, sold through uh, retail and consumed in people's homes by large families with young kids, which seems to be where they go. It's basically huge gangs of hungry you know, kids between one imagines the age of two and about 12 or 13 before it stops being cool that gobble these things up. And they do on a really large scale. So let's go back to the the sort of production process you were alluding to. I mean, maybe I will regret asking more specifically here, but what sort of food science exactly goes into producing the modern American hot dog? I mean, what kind of ingredients or processes would be unrecognizable to the old world butchers of Frankfurt or Vienna? Well, I think, first of all, the type of meat and the relative lack of it in the in the hot dog. I mean, the beef hot dog is a truly American thing. I mean, more specifically, it's a legacy of koshering practices, right? Because no one in Europe would have dreamt of making sausages out of beef. Like, a, beef's too expensive, and B, it's not fatty enough. So the same reason no one in Europe ever made a sausage out of chicken, which are you know, so widespread in the United States. I mean, chicken is too expensive, and it's not fatty enough, so it just doesn't make a good sausage. And of course, the majority of US hot dogs aren't made mainly out of beef either. I mean, beef is one of the ingredients, but more than half of the standard hot dog is made out of water, fat, binding agent, and salt, sodium phosphate, potassium lactate, all of that good stuff, right? Lots and lots of salt. One hot dog is 20% of your recommended daily allowance of salt. And within the meat component, they blend basically beef, pork, chicken, unless it literally says on it beef only or whatever. And the meat is what's politely called trimmings. In other words, anything you can't use anywhere else. So this is muscle trimmings, fatty tissue, head meat, animal feet, animal skin, blood, liver, the whole works. And this isn't, it's worth saying, some ghastly invention of capitalism, though the form it currently takes is, right? Because the traditional function of a sausage was you slaughtered a pig, you cut all the classic cuts off, and then what was left was put into the innards to make sausage. And to European consumers and traditional food ways, the liver or blood, for instance, or head meat are not necessarily, I mean, they are cheaper than the main cuts, but they are not gross stuff that has to be processed and hidden from the consumer, right? People like I grew up eating liver sausage, I grew up eating liver, many people around the world do, it's very tasty, it's got very strong flavor, and so it's prized. But what they do to it now is they basically turn it into a slurry or a batter and then and set that. And the really important innovation in hot dog production is not really the sausage per se, but the casing. Because classically, sausages are made using intestines as as casings. And you can see those. If you buy artisanal European liver sausage or something like that, you can literally see the the animal's intestine. And hot dogs are characteristic precisely because they've somehow made this casing thing mysterious, right? So a classic casing is one where you have a hot dog which has a snap sound. And lots of people don't really like that because you bite in and you have to kind of bite through something. And so what really made the all-American hot dog, this smooth meat tube that somehow hangs together without actually having a skin, is an invention by this guy, Irvin O'Freund, in Chicago in 1924, which is the skinless hot dog. And so what you do there is you cook the meat slurry in a cellulose casing, and then you peel it off. Um, and so you're left with this just sort of amazing, it's kind of magical, right? This 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 pillar of meat that you can 
you can play around with or whatever, and it doesn't fall apart. No, <laughs> Hilariously, apparently the trade name for these original casingless sausages was No Jacks or No Jackets. And they were sold in local Chicago sausage markets. So the No Jacks uh, caseless uh, Frankfurter is really the, the breakthrough innovation of the hot dog world. Wow. Okay. I'm going to try to use that term, see if anyone, anyone knows it the next time I'm in the mood for one. But um, I wanted to ask now about meatless alternatives to hot dogs. I know there's a big market in sort of meatless meat for vegans and others. I mean, is that starting to catch up in popularity when it comes to hot dogs? I, I, I would imagine that it would be easier to replicate a hot dog in a vegan form just because of the texture, you know? Yeah, I'm totally with you on the texture thing. Um, I mean, I've given up eating meat recently and um, or as best I can. And certainly it would be easy to replicate the texture of a hot dog um, with maybe tofu or seitan or something like that. But I think the thing to focus here is on the economics, right? Because hot dogs are cheap food. And if you're in the business of expensive innovation and trying to claw back, you know, uh, margin with some sort of substitute, I don't think you'd start with hot dogs. But what they've done instead, of course, is to start with beef because it's higher priced. And you have to say that these new meatless alternatives they've created for hamburger in particular are, to my mind at least, astonishingly effective. But what they cannot do and what no one has yet managed to do in a satisfactory way is create a substitute for the taste, to my mind anyway, of cured pork. And so that for me is the real challenge. I go anywhere with like serious sausage culture and it's a battle. To, like, I mean, we were in Thuringia and Saxony a couple of weeks ago and like, man, it was hard to resist. Um, that particular flavor of cured pork, if you've become attached to it, it's pretty hard to break. And no, I, I, as far as I'm aware, there are no really good meatless substitutes. Maybe we'll get one of our callers will be able to chime in and suggest something that will will scratch that particular itch. Yeah, do let us know if anyone out there knows. Otherwise, finally, I guess I wanted to ask about hot dogs as a export. I mean, is it a significant export at all for the United States? Is this something that the rest of the world wants from america are hot dogs when i first read this i have to admit i just my european uh, you know hauteur kind of like just I, I was so tickled by this idea that anyone in the world would conceivably want to import an american hot dog but you know for anything other than the creation of like americana i mean maybe like you know ultra uh, authentic japanese baseball fans like to eat them or something like that but it turns out when you google this that there are countries in the world which import american hot dogs and it's chile ecuador and panama perhaps unsurprisingly right so kind of uh, latin american neighbors of the united states and you know the more i thought about it the more i realized i shouldn't really be scoffing because i was actually raised on an even weirder american meat export why? Because like many people around the world, in around World War II and in the early Cold War, my parents were raised on special processed American meat, otherwise known as Spam, which is kind of some, you know, it's a more pork-based American processed product, which comes in a can, which you have to kind of, it has this great key that you turn and you lever it off. Very exciting as children. And they passed this taste on to us as kids. So in the late 60s, early 70s, I grew up eating grilled Spam. Um, you put it under a grill, it creates this caramelized texture on both sides. It's yeah, it's no one's idea of health food, but it's quite yummy. And apparently it's quite big in Asia, uh, in notably in Korea. Uh, and you know, the logic here is it's the American Cold War presence that takes these products around the world and then they become incorporated into people's cuisine. Notably, I think the Asians have been much, much more innovative in what they do with spam. In in Britain, we just, you know, added it to beans on toast or something like that. 
but it, so it wasn't, it was by no means haute cuisine, but there it was. And so these products, if you like a reverse European import of an American processed meat, um, was still very much around, you know, three or four decades ago in Europe. Well, there are all sorts of products people take off of America's hands. Sometimes I'm surprised by I guess, even, you know, Marvel movies. So, you know, if they take our hot dogs. Uh, I guess it shouldn't be that big a surprise. In any case, everyone's celebrating 4th of July. We wish you a happy Independence Day in the U.S. Uh, and even if you're not, maybe you want to try a hot dog if you've never had one before. But we will leave it there otherwise for now. Okay, that's it for another episode of Ones and Twos. Thanks, as always, to my co-host, Adam Twos. Listeners, as always, we like hearing your feedback. Please email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com or tweet us at Ones and Twos Pod. Remember, that's Twos as in Adam's name, T-O-O-Z-E. And, of course, uh, remember to follow and review us on your favorite podcast app. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Laura rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tatey. The executive editor of FP Podcast is Dan Efron. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. (music) 
everyday ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador. Coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.